Well, good afternoon. Uh, for those of you who are here in the Cato Institute Hayek Auditorium, welcome. And to those of you who are watching the webcast, welcome as well. My name is Patrick Eddington. I am your moderator and host today for our event, which is focused on this book, Disrupt, Discredit, and Divide, How the New FBI Damages uh, Our Democracy. Uh, our guest over here on the far end is Mike German, 16-year veteran of the FBI and he is currently uh, at the Brandon Center for Justice uh, with their Liberty and National Security Program. And uh, my, uh, my partner in crime here, so to speak, for this one is Kate Brannon, who is the editorial director of JustSecurity.org. If you're not reading JustSecurity.org, you're doing it wrong. Uh, if you want to be up to date on what's happening with respect to national security law, foreign affairs, <coughs> foreign policy, uh, all those issues that are kind of at the nexus of domestic and foreign affairs, it is an absolute must read. Uh, and I, I will make the disclosure that my colleague, Julian Sanchez, is a co-founder, so I'll, I'll be honest about that, but it's a must read. If I need info uh, on a current topic, if it's breaking, especially the Ukraine gate coverage that these folks have done has been fantastic, absolutely outstanding. So I highly, highly recommend it. I also highly recommend uh, the Brennan Center as a resource uh, on just about any legal issue that you might be concerned about with respect to civil liberties and the Bill of Rights. Um, just tre tremendous work that those folks do there as well. So the obligatory uh, admin uh, announcements I have here, if you've got cell phones, please put those on mute. If you have smart watches, all the rest of that, please make sure that those are silenced as well because we don't want to have our, uh, our guest interrupted uh, by any of that kind of thing. Once we get to the Q&A session towards the end here, um, please wait for the microphone to come around to you. When the microphone does come to you after I've recognized you, please give us your name and your affiliation where appropriate. And remember, this is about questions. It's not about homilies. Um, make sure that you keep them relatively tightly focused. I will assist you in keeping those things uh, tightly focused as we go forward. When the Q&A is over, <clears throat> uh, Mike is going to be out here in the hallway available to uh, sign books for those of you who would like uh, to buy one, and I would strongly encourage you to do so. Uh, it's, as you're going to hear today, it's a fantastic piece of work, uh, very, very timely in light of uh, recent events. And uh, with that, I just want to get underway here. And I, and I have to start essentially with, I think, what is the obvious? What motivated you to join the FBI in the first place? Uh, my dad was an Army officer, West Point graduate. Um, so I grew up where work was government work. And it was just a matter of choosing what agency you're going to work for. And uh, this, you know, I grew up during Vietnam and the post-Vietnam era in the military and realized that the military would never get involved in any kind of conflict that would drag on forever and ever and uh, actually be using uh, the military tools I would be training with. So going into the military seemed kind of silly, uh, a peacetime military. Um, little did I know. <laughs> um, uh, and I had an affinity for the law. So when I was like five or six years old, uh, I told my parents I would go to law school and join the FBI. And my mother only heard the law school part, so she was on board. And my dad heard the FBI part, so he was on board. So that was really the only job I thought about going through and actually went to law school because law school was the easiest route for me to get into the 
FBI because I couldn't add and I couldn't speak a foreign language. <laughs> uh, so, uh, you know, and was lucky that I came through law school when the FBI was in a hiring phase uh, around the SNL crisis. And this, this was in 88 when you joined, is that 88, right? 88, yes. <clears throat> Walk us through what the experience at the FBI Academy at Quantico is like for a new recruit. What, what is it, in, at least 30 years ago, what, what did it involve? Uh, so 30 years ago, it was only 13 weeks. It was, it was fairly short and mostly focused on getting you up to speed in how the administrative process worked within the FBI. Federal Bureau of Investigation. Its middle name is bureaucracy. <laughs> and, and so the idea was to make sure you understood the paperwork and those things, and you would just get short briefings about the different substantive issues, white-collar crime, what statutes were involved, organized crime, what statutes were involved. But it was really very surface level. And the idea was, and of course, firearms and physical training. Um, and the idea was you'd really get your training out in the field that they just wanted to get you up to speed so you wouldn't be dragging anyone down <laughs> once you got there and, and could competently protect yourself. Uh, but, but most of the trading was going to be out in the field. So a lot of the historical episodes of, uh, I'll say, problems with the FBI, did any of that come up in the training that you went through? Any, any references to things like COINTELPRO or any of the rest of that kind of stuff? Uh, uh, certainly not in any formal training environment, and, and it really wasn't discussed at all. I mean, I would imagine that if you talk to my colleagues at the time, and maybe even now, they wouldn't know much about that era. And so it, it, there's not really a, I, I mean, one of the problems within the FBI is they're uh, very uh, unwilling to accept any criticism. So certainly criticism that's documented in the church committee report and stuff isn't something that they're really going to talk about very much. And one of the things that they taught you from day one is never embarrass the Bureau. And I assumed that meant never do something that will bring embarrassment to the Bureau, but it was more never say anything about anything that will embarrass the Bureau. And they just brooked no criticism. Anytime the Bureau was involved in some kind of public scandal, they would sort of close ranks and say, you know, you're hearing a lot of stuff from people who don't know what they're talking about. It wasn't that bad. <laughs> uh, so so <clears throat> you joined 16 years after J. Edgar Hoover passed away. Yeah. And yet his do nothing to sully the Bureau mantra was still thoroughly ingrained. Absolutely. Even at that point. So, Absolutely. And, and my own view is, on the basis of how Mr. Comey former director has reacted. Hmm. That mentality still seems to be very much alive and well. Right, I, I mean, part of the issue is uh, the FBI is very dependent on its reputation to yeah. be successful. And there's actually a saying in the, in the uh, center courtyard of the Hoover building that says, something, I'll paraphrase, something to the extent of the FBI cannot be, or law enforcement can't be successful with the trust and, without the trust and confidence of the American public. So there's this recognition that we're talking about a very small agency, right? This, this is about 35,000 employees, only 12,000 badge and gun carrying FBI agents to cover the entire country and now spread all over the globe. So it's a very small force for the impact that it has on our society. 
And in order for them to do that, they have to get cooperation from other government and, and law enforcement agencies and mostly from the public. And they, can't, they feel they can't get that without having this reputation that they're all powerful and don't make mistakes and are perfect in everything they do. And anything that challenges that they see as a mortal threat. Kate? Okay. Um, I thought I'd start with the title, Disrupt, Discredit, and Divide, How the New FBI Damages Democracy. And Subtle. <laughs> <laughs> but you go into um, great detail about the FBI's history and how um, you know, it's got a long past with discrimination mm -hmm. and targeting political activists. Um, so how does what you're describing about sort of the post 9-11 FBI fit into that history, but then um, what about it is new, do you think? Uh, so the, the title, Disrupt, Discredit, and Divide, was harkening uh, 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 back to the COINTELPRO program, J. Edgar Hoover's program that targeted civil rights workers and anti-war protesters and, and basically anybody who criticized the Bureau um, to, and, and the, the purpose of that program wasn't to identify criminal acts that have happened and gather the evidence to prove them in court, but rather to disrupt, discredit, and divide these political movements. Um, so one of the things that bothered me immediately after 9-11 is, and you know, as a kid wanting to be in the FBI, I read everything there was to read about the FBI. I was very much a student of the FBI, so I knew that history very well, and how the language came back immediately. Hmm. You know, where, where the FBI established a formal disruption strategy where cases were no longer about uh, finding violations of criminal law and, and, and preparing those for prosecution, but rather back to this idea of disruption, disrupting somebody's behavior. And the, the counterterrorism program's disruption strategy says, you know, if you've done an investigation and you, you don't have enough evidence to prosecute, somebody for being a terrorist, you can engage in these disruptive activities using informants, uh, immigration processes, all these kinds of things. But what I know from my own case is often when I wasn't able to prove somebody was a terrorist, that was because they weren't. <laughs> and so when you're authorizing these activities against people who you can't prove are actually engaging in crime, you're stepping beyond what I think is the appropriate uh, 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 function of a law enforcement agency or even a national security agency. Um, to stay on that thought for a second, you talk about how sort of limiting the FBI to um, things that have the, you know, the criminal predication that you can bring the right. case isn't just uh, important from a civil rights perspective, but from just a management of the national security risks and threats. Could you talk about that a little bit? Sure. So, so one of the problems uh, in, in, again, going back to the Hoover era to, to grab this language, uh, the way the FBI articulated it is that they were no longer primarily a law enforcement agency. They were primarily a national security and domestic intelligence agency. But those things aren't very well defined. And um, so when you send somebody out to imagine what are the possible threats to our democracy and put me in the position of being the one responsible for preventing those things from coming true, that creates an energy that uh, uh, is, is problematic behind that in the first place, but then who you target 
um, because we know from human nature that people tend to think to be more suspect of people who are not like them. And you know whether that's different in race, different in religion, different in national origin, different in some cultural aspect, just different politically. So it, it opens up the door to a lot of bias. And then at the same time that this uh, you know, kind of what I call attitudinal change was happening, there was also an architectural change where the FBI's guidelines that, it, 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 you know, I, part of the reason I go through the history is because when you look through the history, there's some kind of national emergency that justifies expanding the, the FBI's remit and, and uh, tactical measures that they're allowed to take. They get, uh, they abuse those authorities uh, and then they're brought back to their law enforcement function. And that happened in the 1920s after the Palmer raids where uh, uh, Attorney General Harlan Fisk Stone brought Hoover in and said, I want you to make this the, a professional law enforcement agency. Will you please run it? <laughs> Not really realizing that he had been charge, in charge of the radicals division that was engaged in a lot of the, the problematic behavior, <clears throat> or at least not recognizing how dangerous that was to put Hoover in charge. And of course, World War II comes around and, and it opens the door to that kind of abuse again that, that Hoover ran through. Um, and when the Church Committee investigation exposed the Hoover era abuses, uh, new guidelines were put in to again force the FBI or compel the FBI, it's hard to force the FBI to do anything, but to uh, urge the FBI to stay within cases. The, the standard I worked under was a reasonable indication of criminal activity. And when other agents would talk about that as a barrier to effective work, I would say, well, why would you want to investigate somebody you don't reasonably believe is doing anything wrong. That's, you know, on its face, it's a silly concept. But unfortunately, those standards were reduced again to where the FBI could investigate people without objective, an, object, an objective basis to, to suspect them of actual wrongdoing. So what constitutes a reasonable belief for, for the layperson like myself? Uh, what what a totality of the facts and circumstances that a prudent law enforcement officer would find reasonable. So again, it's not what, what some member of the general public might see as reasonable, but already in this context, you know, most law enforcement people I know are pretty suspicious of everyone, right? Uh, so it's putting it in their context, and then it's a, it's a, very, it's a very low standard. You know, it's not the probable cause you need to, to go and get a warrant from a judge, which again is a, not a very high standard, right? Probable cause is just the evidence that makes me think you're probably violating the law, right? It's not nowhere near the, the uh, 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 preponderance of the evidence standard for civil courts and of course far away from the uh, uh, guilt beyond a reasonable doubt. So these are, but, but you would at least have to have some objective basis to, to to argue that you have the, the reasonable indication that somebody is engaging in criminal activity. And you know, especially in my undercover work in domestic terrorism, I found that standard incredibly effective, not just in protecting innocent people from the FBI's scrutiny, but in focusing on the right people. You know, I was undercover with, with neo-Nazis. Everybody in the room was saying something I didn't like. Everybody was saying something that I thought was really dangerous to our society but requiring the discipline of me actually writing down on a piece of paper what evidence do you believe you have to, that this person that you're 
uh, interested in investigating is actually violating the law. And that helped those investigations focus properly on the people who are actually doing harm. Um, let's stay on white, the white supremacist threat sure. for a sec, because um, first of all, your, your background with it is fascinating. Mike was an <coughs> undercover agent who went, um, penetrated neo-Nazi groups. Um, I'm trying to find my question about it. Um, but what were you, um, how were, you sort of lumped both white nationalism and white collar crime together toward the end as these blind spots that the FBI right. had as it went sort of full bore CT counterterrorism. Right. Um, how were those being treated, but we can focus on, focus on white nationalism right now, being treated when you were in the bureau and then um, it's back in the news today obviously there's a sense that it has been overlooked, right. that it has snuck up on us. Um, and just comment a little bit about today's environment. Um, so you know, I came into the FBI during the savings and loan crisis, and it was not dissimilar from the financial crisis of 2008. The only dissimilarity is the FBI actually ramped up investigations. The Justice Department, I think there were a thousand some prosecutions of the, the heads of these uh, savings and loan uh, uh, companies. So uh, there was more of a focus on it. Those are hard cases, you know, the, the, uh, and that's what I found somewhat challenging about it, right? This, you know, I remember coming out of the academy, I'm, I'm, you know, ready to go kick down doors and do that kind of stuff and get put on the biggest savings and loan failure ever. Um, and, you know, basically spending my time inside uh, bank vaults and going through <laughs> papers, it's not the most exciting thing. So I had gone to the other squads and said, you know, if, if you need something on a weekend, if you need something at night, you know, if you need somebody to help you on anything, um, I'm your man, come to me, I'll do, I'll do it so I can get some broader experience. And uh, kind of uh, one day an agent from the bank robbery squad comes in there, comes into my office and he says, hey, you got a couple hours to spare, I'm going to go out and arrest a bank robber. It's like, all right, great. We'll go out and arrest a bank robber. And, you know, we go into the bad part of town and in this little really ramshackle house. This is Los Angeles. Yeah. A ramshackle house, you know, he sort of just walk in the door and here's a guy, you know, it's probably two in the afternoon. He's sleeping in the couch. We wake him up and, you know, hey, come on with us. And, you know, he's this scrawny guy. He looks like he hasn't eaten for a long time, probably a heroin addict. And, uh, you know, we arrest him and he's like, what is this about? And here's the photograph of him robbing the bank. And he's, oh, that's not me. <laughs> like, yeah, okay. Tell it to the judge. <laughs> uh, you know, so we, you know, and this is kind of fun for me. This is a big deal. And we get him in the car and it's like, uh, you remember the case agent is asking, you remember how much you got away with from that robbery? And he says, yeah, 300 bucks. I'm thinking, oh, I have a $25 million fraud sitting on my desk while I'm out here working a $300 bank robbery. This is insanity. And, and so, you know, the importance of that work uh, is critical. And, and you know, I'm, I'm, I'm proud that I was part of that effort. Um, and, and then, you know, doing that work and, again, sort of putting out feelers when the case was coming to an end, uh, another colleague of mine came up and said, you know, you have blonde hair and blue eyes. You can be a Nazi. I'm starting this undercover case. You know, why don't you go be a Nazi? And so, all right, I'll go, go from the banks to undercover with Nazis. And uh, um, those, I don't think there was ever uh, 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 
pressure to open domestic terrorism cases, particularly white supremacist cases, those cases, like all FBI cases. I mean, people don't understand that the FBI is an upside-down organization. The work is done out in the field by agents who are going out, doing investigations, developing informants, interacting with the public, talking to victims. So some, an agent in Los Angeles saw this problem of, of various white supremacist violence. This is during Los Angeles in 1992, where the uh, police beating of Rodney King caused a lot of social unrest. Um, and he said, you know, I, I believe these incidents are not unrelated. You know, that, you know, we'll see that, you know, here was this attack uh, and three people were arrested, but there were two other people there who weren't, didn't actually participate, but were there. And, you know, they happened to have also been somewhere else. And he had this whole map of Los Angeles where he had worked it out and just by the force of his will convinced the FBI to do those investigations. <coughs> Even afterwards, I had spent 14 months undercover. And after the trials were over, I called up the domestic terrorism unit and said, you know, I spent more than a year doing this case. I had no a lot of what's going on, who's who, who's up, who's down, when are we going to do a debriefing? And they said, we don't do that. And, you know, that was it. Everything was in my head. And when I ended up doing a second case with anti-government militias, uh, the same, you know, I was able to not do the, not repeat the mistakes that I made and, and you know, made very similar cases, illegal firearms transfers, manufacturing explosives, things like that. And I thought, okay, well now I'm not just some brand new agent who got lucky in, in his first case. You know, this is actually a methodology we could repeat. So I called the domestic terrorism unit again and they had no interest and still to this day have never talked to me about how I did that work. And, you know, and it was fascinating after 9-11 because it was all this, oh, how do we get it, uh, information about how terrorists recruit? I said, I, I've got two years of tape recorded being recruited into terrorist organizations. You don't have to ask anybody. Listen to the tapes. They're there. No, nobody's interested. So, uh, you know, obviously after 9-11, there was more interest in, in uh, terrorism from abroad, but there really has never been a focus on white supremacist violence. And really the best evidence of that is uh, anybody know how, how many people white supremacists kill every year? Neither does the FBI. <laughs> Nobody knows. We don't keep that data. The FBI doesn't collect that data. We don't, I mean, it's astonishing, right? That, that when I always get calls from reporters who say, you know, oh, uh, white supremacist violence is rising. Compared to what? <laughs> Compared to when the media wasn't covering it and the police weren't investigating it? You know, I'm not sure it's rising. It, it's, you're just looking at it now. Um, so, uh, you know, there does seem to be some movement over the last year. Just this week, Christopher Ray testified that they were going to raise the uh, priority of, of domestic terrorism. So that's, there's some positive there. But, you know, it's too, still uh, the FBI says that 80% uh, of their counterterrorism resource go to international terrorism and only 20% to domestic terrorism. And you have to understand that domestic terrorism isn't all white supremacist violent. Even though white supremacists are by far the most violent of the domestic terrorists, uh, the FBI has prioritized environmental rights activists and uh, what they call black identity extremists, which mm -hmm. isn't really a thing, um, rather than these groups that actually kill people. 
Um, along those lines, um, as sort of the white supremacist threat has um, gotten more attention, uh, you see folks who are sort of applauding that because it's for good reason, right. um, also saying, well, let's apply the same um, programs that we did for um, sort of Islamic extremist right. terrorism on that group, whether it's countering violent extremism, CVE, right. which you talk about in the book, uh, sort of you know, bemoan the fact that the Trump administration canceled out the money for CVE, for white supremacy. Then you also see people arguing, well, let's, we need more authorities to go after the white supremacist threat so that we can take it as seriously as the foreign terrorist threat. But you've written at Just Security, um, none of that's needed. You have all the authorities you need, and the programs that were bad for that are still bad for this, even though this is a different you know, looking threat. So could you talk it, about that a little bit? It, exactly. I mean, it, it, and, and there's so much, so much of the, uh, the argument is afactual, right? I mean, one of the things that they originally came out and, and were saying is, oh, you know, there is no domestic terrorism law in the United States. And that's shocking, right? Oh my gosh, you know, we have this problem. There's no domestic terrorism law in the United States. But what they omit is there is no law called international terrorism either, right? It's, it's a silly argument that, that ignores how cases are actually worked. And in fact, there are 57 federal crimes of terrorism, and 51 of those apply to purely domestic attacks. Um, in fact, they apply to any, or I'm sorry, any terrorist attack. So, you know, the idea that there aren't laws to investigate domestic terrorism is silly. I worked these cases in the 1990s. Nobody then suggested we didn't have the laws. And it's more, I think, an attempt to use the failure to focus on this problem that has now gained public attention to get more resources rather than to just focus on the work. Um, you know, one of the other things that, that they promote is, you know, the, the, really the primary difference between the way that the FBI works international terrorism uh, from domestic is one particular statute that uh, prohibits material support for a foreign terrorist organization. And of course, there are no foreign terrorist organizations that are domestic. And it's, it, and it's part of this weird semantics where, for whatever reason, the FBI back in the 1970s, I think, determined that white supremacist violence was domestic terrorism, uh, even though I think they know we didn't invent Nazis, right? And certainly the white supremacist violence is carried out by groups all across the country. Uh, so the idea that this was a purely domestic activity is kind of false. And, you know, it, it, it's fascinating if somebody walks into an, uh, an FBI office and says, hey, you know, my next door neighbor's garage was open and I saw him making what I think were bombs and I think he's a terrorist. They would say, okay, uh, you know, w what makes you think he's a terrorist? And he says, well, he had a Nazi flag up as he was making these bombs. Okay, that's domestic terrorism. We use, treat that as a criminal matter uh, using traditional law enforcement tools. Oh, he had an ISIS flag up. Okay, we treat that as international terrorism, uh, and you know we use national security tools. We uh, consider that uh, support for a foreign terrorist organization. But then you ask the next question, you know, how, you know, do you know where he's from? Oh yeah, he's born and raised right here. He's lived here. He's never actually even left the town limits before. He's still an international terrorist. <laughs> you know, does he have any connection with actual real terrorist groups in some foreign land? No, he doesn't even have a telephone. You know, this is, but he's an international terrorism. 
where on the, on the Nazi side, you know, how long have you known him? He just moved here from France, domestic terrorists. <laughs> you know, it's, it's completely afactual. So that's part of the problem because, you know, I, I mean, it's a bureaucratic agency. It has to devote its resources and, and, and put them in certain categories. But then to let the categories influence how you actually investigate the case makes no sense. And when you look at particularly that one law, the material support law, it was written in 1996 <clears throat> when uh, Hamas, you know, Hamas went, started becoming much more violent using suicide bombings. And the idea behind it was these terrorist organizations abroad need financing in order to survive. And if we can only cut off the financing, they will dry up and die. So if we criminalize supporting these groups, they'll go away. I think Hamas is still doing pretty well. <laughs> it was, uh, you know, as Al Qaeda was just starting as as a, a international terrorist group. It was long before ISIS. You know, these groups have have prospered since that law was put in effect. And when you look at how the the government uses those laws, they're not going after big. Uh, international banking institutions where big dollars are going around the world that might be used by some nefarious organization. They're looking at some poor schmuck who sent $1,500 to his cousin who happens to be part of or associated somehow with al-Shabaab. I mean, there's a case in D.C. Uh, the FBI worked a six-year undercover investigation, sending multiple informants to try to coax this guy into committing some kind of bad act, uh, ultimately one informant who was a friend of his for two years uh, pretends to have gone to Syria and sends him a note saying, hey, you know, could really use your help. Can you send me $250? 15 years in prison for sending $200 not to ISIS, but to somebody who is only pretending to be part of ISIS. I mean, it's, the idea that that is somehow effectively protecting our national security is ridiculous. All it's doing is helping the FBI uh, create statistical accomplishments to continue to justify their programs. Um, to change gears a little bit, when I was reading, I was remembering um, one of the great things about working at Just Security is I get to work with authors like Pat and like Mike and have been for the last few years. And um, I was remembering um, emails we exchanged in 2017. I was uh, working on a piece about Paul Manafort and I was like, I don't understand Given what he's being charged with, how did it take the scrutiny of a presidential campaign and the Mueller investigation when this guy's like a career criminal? Mm. Um, how did he? How did this, you know, not get prosecuted before now? <clears throat> and your response was, you know, Kate. First of all, this showcases the two-tier justice system that is right. in this country that allows for white-collar crime to flourish. Um, but I also was wondering if you could talk a little bit about what. Um, you know, the Manafort case, uh, but also the Russian interference in the election. Sort of what did that expose, if anything, about the FBI um, and sort of this huge surveillance machine that you described right. that was created after 9-11 and what it's, as we were saying, blind spots are or um, what it's sort of failing to do while it's so sort of so ramped up, and yet these things are slipping through the cracks. Right, and, and you know, it's not like, you know, pretty much everything Manafort was charged with were, were things he was doing before he was the campaign manager. Right. So there was a decade worth of time that the FBI could have been investigating him, and in fact, it wasn't as if he was 
flying under the radar. He was associating with people with uh, oligarchs, Russian oligarchs, who were part of FBI investigations. So it, I, I think, reflects the, the failure when, when the government talks about national security, and you particularly take a small agency like the FBI, they look at it so narrowly that, that they don't really protect our national security, right? I mean, the idea that, that the Russian government could send to intelligence people across the country to learn about our election system and, and the FBI not being aware of that when they have this surveillance net that collects all of our phone calls, the data from all of our phone calls and, and other broad mass collection programs without focusing on people who are actually engaging in criminality. I mean, I, you know, anybody who would go abroad and uh, hang around with international criminals and come back with $40 million you would think would, would draw some attention. And, and again, you know, it's not as if they didn't know about it. You know, they, they, they were actually doing investigations of the people that he was with. But you know, starting in the late 90s, after the, the savings and loan stuff, there was less, uh, there was a memo at the Justice Department that um, required uh, FBI agents and prosecutors working high-level white-collar crime with big companies to, to uh, not look to prosecution so much as working out a deal. And, you know, in some cases that might make sense. Uh, uh, you know, these are very difficult cases to work. It's a lot of resources to put into it if, if the company will fire its board of directors who were responsible and, and pay a huge fine and, and promised never to do it again. In some cases that might work. But what it did is create a, a system where the agents don't have the expertise in doing that work. The prosecutors lose the expertise in prosecuting those work, that work. And, and you don't have a strong enough incentive to prevent uh, elite fraud from, from taking place. Um, and, and so it, it uh, got worse after 9-11 when so many resources <laughs> went to counterterrorism, again, looking at national security very narrowly, uh, where the head of the white-collar crime section of the FBI, a guy named Chris Swickert, uh, actually went public, which is a no-no in the FBI, and said, uh, we are seeing a huge influx in mortgage fraud, and we don't have the resources to address it because of the way that we've uh, divided our resources, and we need to put resources into this problem, or we will have a crisis on our hands. And he was told, we are working counterterrorism as our number one priority. We are not going to divide resources for white-collar crime. And of course, by, 2000, by January of 2009, the director of national security went before the Senate in the worldwide threat hearing, and he said the, the global financial meltdown is the number one national security problem. Well, it was the national security problem back in 2004, and if you have an, a national security agency that calls itself intelligence-focused, the idea is to see the threat on the horizon. And, you know, that's just another example of how that's not an effective way of, of looking at it. And, of course, the, the frauds that were involved with the, uh, what we know now of, of Russians' attempt to in, in, interfere with the election. And, you know, whether you believe their attempts were actually effective in changing anybody's minds or changing anybody's votes is kind of irrelevant, irrelevant because it certainly has disrupted our process, right? I mean, whether 
It's, it's the resources that are going into the Mueller investigation and the continuing investigations. You know, it, it, for, I'm sure just like Osama bin Laden was sitting back after 9-11 going, I can't believe this is so successful. Uh, you know, I'm sure whatever Russian intelligence people were responsible for these investigations are, are just can't even believe how effective what a, a, a relatively small investment has been in totally undermining confidence in the American systems. Well, I'd, I'd like to go back to this whole issue of <clears throat> not seeing the threat, because in this book, you go into a fair amount of detail about the 9-11 related failure. And <clears throat> uh, I found especially poignant being reminded about uh, Colleen Rowley, mm -hmm. uh, the, the lawyer, FBI lawyer in the Minnesota uh, Minneapolis field office, who was just constantly warning, we've got, we've got a problem here, we've got a problem here, and was being shut down. So you, you talk essentially about the sexism that was undoubtedly at work there, right? But then also just the failure to deal with the data that was literally right in front of them. And, and the failure to kind of coordinate, essentially, people at headquarters not, not act, actively reaching out for data, right? Right. Where you get a Musawi who wants to learn how to fly, you know, a 747 but not land it. <laughs> and you get all these other pieces that are out there at these field offices. And there's nobody essentially collating this stuff and kind of bringing it, to, which to me is like, why do you have an FBI headquarters right. if folks back there are not doing the do, so to speak, and kind of, you know, pulling all these threads together. And then we get this circumstance where that part of the failure does not come out for months, right? Right. All of that plays out long after we get the Patriot Act. You know, six weeks after 9-11, with, with all of this <clears throat> constant fear-mongering, and as you point out in the book, the complete inaccuracies that were being proffered by DOJ and FBI officials about we didn't have the data, we didn't have the resources, none of which was true. Right. But there was no... Nobody put the brakes on, essentially, to say we need to actually look at the problem, figure out what the problem was, and then we decide what the solution is. Right. Right. And um, I, so, you know, people, when, the, when in 2004 the 9-11 Commission report finally came out, you know, it, it wasn't that, oh, you know, all the intelligence agencies woke up on September 11th and you know, all of a sudden there were planes, uh, planes flying into buildings. It was 500 pages of a lot of details that, that the intelligence agencies all had, but they were just mismanaging that information. And of course, the FBI plays a big role in that. Um, but, and you know, one of the things that I wanted to do in the book is, is to make it clear that I'm, I'm criticizing the way the FBI is managed, the way, the way that the structures work to uh, cause these problems and that there are heroes working within these agencies like Colleen Rowley struggling very diligently trying to do the right thing for the American people. And the fascinating thing about uh, her letter that I'm sure a lot of people realize, re, you know, read and remember that story that she was a, uh, the chief division counsel in the Minneapolis office who had been, had, had a oversight role of the agent's attempts to get a Foreign Intelligence Surveillance Act warrant to examine the computer of Zacharias Massawi, who had tried to get in flight school, um, but had acted very oddly, was paying large sums of cash, and uh, an instructor called the FBI and said, something's wrong with here. 
Uh, so the FBI found out he was out of status, his immigration status uh, didn't allow him to be a student. So they arrest him on, a, on an immigration violation, but uh, there, you know, he has a lot of knives and uh, a lot of strange things. There was a detail, a lot of the, the strange evidence. Um, but the managers back at headquarters wouldn't let them get a Foreign Intelligence Surveillance Act order. I don't know if any of you are familiar with the Foreign Intelligence Surveillance Act. It's gotten a little notoriety <laughs> recently. Um, and uh, so you know, they stall and stall and stall and come up with all kinds of reasons, including rewriting his affidavit to take facts out and to change facts that became part of uh, what we're seeing in the current problems with the program. Um, but that's not what she was writing about. Uh, what she was concerned with is afterwards they had gotten a warrant to go into his computer, and sure enough, he was linked to the people who did 9-11, so now they're prosecuting him for that, and so they're gathering the evidence to prosecute him, and the director of the FBI, Robert Mueller, and the Attorney General, uh, John Ashcroft, are making public statements that we had no evidence, uh, we had no indication that anybody was doing anything wrong in this country, nobody knew. And she became concerned that, the, that uh, Robert Mueller was, was being misinformed and that his statements would be used by the defense in, in the prosecution and undermine the defense. So her letter to him was to warn him that you're being misinformed. We have all this information, so please stop saying this publicly. And uh, you know, uh, I've gotten to know Colleen well, and I, I think you know, she would acknowledge that uh, that was maybe a little naive, that in fact, of course, the idea was by claiming we didn't have any information justifying broader surveillance programs and mass surveillance is tenable, right? If you're saying, oh, we had so much information, we didn't know what to do with it, and the right hand didn't know what, what the left hand was doing, you know, getting more information isn't the solution to that problem, right? So she, she was attempting to get them to focus on the fact that this was going to imperil an investigation. And, uh, uh, it, you know, what was fascinating about it uh, in fact, if you're looking at, at the, the continuing problems with the FISA court, uh, there was a hearing in 2002, I believe it was, in the Senate Judiciary Committee uh, where Arlen Specter uh, was the chairman uh, to talk about the FISA request in the Massawi case. And four supervisors from headquarters who, who were the supervisors who were in the chain of command denying uh, the ability to even go to the FISA court, not whether they'd get a warrant, but even to make a, a request to the FISA court, were asked a pretty simple question, you would think. What's the legal standard necessary to get a Foreign Intelligence Surveillance Act order? Out of the four, how many do you think knew? Anybody have none? <laughs> none of them could articulate the legal standard necessary to get a Foreign Intelligence Surveillance Act warrant, and they were the ones who were standing in the way of these agents getting the Foreign Intelligence Surveillance Act. And, and that is a very different problem from, you know, do we need more intelligence and, and how do we handle it? And instead, we open the spigots and... Well, if, if officials go out and deliberately mislead or lie to the public about why something happens, it's like the perfect blame-shifting mechanism, right? So, and of course, none of these people who were responsible for these failures lost their jobs, 
To the best of my Ooh. knowledge, nobody who was responsible for the 9-11 disaster, whether it was at CIA, FBI, NSA, or anywhere else, nobody lost their job. Right, and you know, I, I think it's hard to say responsible for it. You know, they, they were responsible for making errors in, in uh, judgment. Um, you know, part of the problem is there has become an expectation that uh, law enforcement or intelligence agencies are, are capable of preventing every bad thing from happening. Mm-hmm. And, um, you know, when I became an FBI agent, they gave me a gun and a car and a badge, but not a crystal ball. And the idea that, that these agencies' job is to prevent any bad thing from happening, I think part of the pro- is part of the problem because it means pouring in all sorts of resources. It means trying any available tool uh, because that job is so difficult. And uh, rather than saying, you know, let's focus on the very small number of people who are actually doing something bad. And like my investigations went, usually when you find somebody who's making bombs, he's pretty con- closely connected to the guy who's planting bombs. You know, that, that you can do the investigations from that reasonable evidentiary uh, indication that somebody is doing something wrong. Much more effectively than gathering information about everyone and then trying to figure out who's doing what. I wanted to ask you a little bit about today's environment and today's upside down world right. and like the, the world in which this book is coming out. Right. Um, where in the past, you know, the, the Republicans, the right, would sort of align itself with FBI law enforcement intelligence right. community uh, under George W. Bush gave it all these authorities right. and tools. Um, and the left, you know, obviously is supposed to be more civil rights minded, et cetera, et cetera. But under Trump, it's kind of flipped where you've got the Republican Party and Trump attacking the FBI, attacking the CIA. And some of these figures have become real heroes of the left, whether it's Robert Mueller or James right. Comey or Andy McCabe. Um, and you have a great uh, sort of description of it. I won't read it aloud right now just due to time. But um, what is it like raising critiques at this time? And um, is there pushback? Is there, I, so I, I, you know, I even at Just Security, you know, where we kind of have a mandate to be more human rights and civil rights oriented. At the same time, you know, as we cover the Mueller investigation and everything, um, what's it like to be criticizing the FBI in this moment? Um, and for a different right. set of things than what they're being attacked right. for from right. the right. And I actually wrote the proposal in 2014. And I started shopping it around to literary agents. And one guy looks at it and he says, you know, the trouble you're going to have getting anybody to buy this is that nobody's going to believe the FBI acts in a political manner. Thank you, Jim Comey. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> uh, made it much more understandable to the general public that, yes, of course, the FBI acts in a political manner. Um, uh, but uh, you're right. And, and I wouldn't necessarily say it's left-right. Um, you know, obviously, we're here at the Cato Institute. Um, and Cato has, has been a, a very strong supporter of my work and a partner in a lot of the, I've the things it. that... that uh, uh, I was doing when I was here at the ACLU and continue to do at the Brennan Center. Um, uh, and you know, there were certainly Democrats who were big supporters of the national security yeah. expansion. Um, and in, in fact, one of the most frustrating things, because as a, a whistleblower coming out of the FBI and realizing going through that process how ineffective the, the current uh, policies and, and systems are, 
for FBI or national security people, you know, to hear uh, members of the intelligence committee saying, you know, please, Mr. President, do not uh, retaliate against the whistleblower. Please, uh, head of these agencies, do not, where that, those intelligence committees stood in the way of uh, legal reform in a number of different opportunities since I've left the FBI where they could have passed strong whistleblower protections that would have ensured that these were protected and that these people were protected and they wouldn't have to beg uh, the, the executive branch not to retaliate against people who are, who are whistleblowing. Um, but, but you're absolutely right. It does come out in, in a, at an odd time uh, where what, what I'm hoping the book does, and you know, I tried to put enough research in there that they don't have to take my word for it, uh, we'll actually look at what's wrong with the FBI because it's not, it's not a question that was the way that the Justice Department presented it. You know, you want your, you know, uh, you, uh, well, what was the line Ashcroft used? He said something, um, anybody remember? It was, uh, oh, I'm, I'm blanking on it now, but it was basically saying that, oh, phantoms of lost liberty. We can't let phantoms of lost liberty get in the way of protecting the nation. You know, this idea that by giving up our liberties, giving up our privacy, we will somehow be more secure. It's the opposite. If you have people at FBI headquarters running the Foreign Intelligence Surveillance Act program who don't know the law, that doesn't protect anybody's privacy, right? Because they're going to allow people to get warrants when they shouldn't. And it also doesn't protect our security because they're not going to allow it when they need to. Um, so all of these problems within the FBI, uh, I, I think, affect both. That, it, that if you're concerned about security, you should want a more effective FBI. If you're concerned about civil liberties, you should want a more accountable FBI. And those things work hand in glove. And my hope is that uh, sort of when we get, the, when the waters <laughs> calm a bit, that there will be enough skepticism among Republicans who had been strong supporters of these FBI authorities uh, and enough skepticism still within the Democrats who now tend to champion the FBI in a way that I think is uh, counterproductive to, to create a coalescence around the need to do a deep dive in the FBI, find out what's wrong for both civil liberties and our security and, and fix what's needed. Well, and, and you, you kind of opened the door for me there when, when you talked about the fact that you were a whistleblower. Mm. And, uh, and I want to explore that uh, in a little bit. But what you said, and this is on page 102 of the book, this gets to the issue of accountability, right? Mm. And, and this, is, this is what you have to say. But the larger question about the lack of integrity in internal investigations has not been adequately addressed. And you alluded to some of that just now. If bureau leaders can't be trusted to conduct honest investigations against their own agents, especially effective ones like Julia Crowley and Jane Turner, and I'd like right. to explore those cases a little bit, how can members of the public who fall under FBI suspicion due to racial, religious, nationalistic, or ideological bias ever protect themselves? That should pretty much, I think, scare the crap out of everybody, right. fundamentally. I mean, if... Yeah. if and, and talk, talk about first your experience and, and what led you there, and then let's talk a little bit, if we can, about uh, Julie and Jane. Uh, so so <laughs> post 9-11 in 2002, early 2002, I was asked to do the undercover work on an investigation that had been running a few months uh, where a, and I, this case didn't go to trial, so I have to be somewhat careful in how I talk about it, but it was uh, a U.S. supporter of a foreign terrorist organization 
um, who had in a, basically reached out to white supremacist groups and said, you know, we're not, we're not friendly in any way, but you don't like Jews, we don't like Jews, uh, you can help us hurt Jews uh, abroad. Uh, and so there was this opportunity to put this FBI undercover agent in the middle of this devil's deal. Um, and so great case. I mean, when it came, I was like, oh my gosh, this is going to be uh, outstanding. Um, but very quickly learned that it was being mismanaged in significant ways, but ultimately that there had been an illegal recording done. And there's a way to address that and still preserve a prosecution. Uh, so I asked them to do that. And they said, no, what we're going to do instead is pretend it wasn't recorded. We'll take all the information off it and pretend it wasn't recorded. And I was, at that point in my career, having been through two long domestic terrorism investigations and multiple others, I was a really good liar. <laughs> and I could lie uh, to bad guys and criminals. But the idea of lying to a jury wasn't really one of my uh, checklists for, uh, you know, it wasn't on my bucket list. Um, so I said, no, I, I'm not going to do that, and just reported it up through the chain of command as, as it is required in the way that the FBI works. Uh, interestingly, th there was a trap in the whistleblower protection regulations for the FBI that if you report through the chain of command, you aren't protected. Right? You, know, you have to go around the chain of command, which, of course, if you go around the chain of command, you're going to get yourself in trouble, right? I mean, if I walked into my, so above me, there's a supervisor and then an assistant special agent in charge and then a special agent in charge. If I went to the, and knocked on the special agent in charge's door, which is what the regulations would require me to do, he isn't going to open the door. He's going to call the ASAC, the person below him, and say, why is Mike German knocking on my door? And the ASAC would call the supervisor and say, why is Mike German knocking on the special agent in charge's door? Right? That they, that not, nobody likes that kind of surprise. So it, it, it basically the regulation created a trap. But worse than that, <clears throat> um, what, what frightened me more than anything was that, that the people who were trying to hide what they did, I mean, actually falsifying documents, uh, uh, I caught them at that, right? that, okay, here, here's document one dated three weeks ago that says A, and here's document two dated after my complaint that says not A. You know, we have a problem here. There's something going on. Um, and realizing that my record, my good conduct through 14 years of, of work meant nothing and that these managers could tell bald-faced lies and get away with it was uh, you find yourself in a very vulnerable position, right, if the truth doesn't matter, and that everybody will stand up. Uh, uh, um, one of the things they lied about was whether the recording actually happened uh, and said this was never recorded, Mike German's a nut, you have a, a problematic informant, um, you know, there's nothing to see here without realizing they had actually given me the transcript. So, you know, went up to FBI headquarters with a transcript of a meeting that on paper they say was not recorded. <laughs> you know, how do you explain this? And the, the uh, supervisor at the uh, Office of Professional Responsibility that does these investigations was, was looking at me like this because the transcript was on the table. And I said, you know, you, you can look at it. It's not going to go away if you just, like, keep it out of your peripheral vision. But... 
that nothing happened. Nobody, nobody was in trouble for that. They used whiteout to alter some of the documents or one of the documents. Um, and so that was a shock to me as an FBI agent who believed there was integrity in 99% of the Bureau that that kind of dishonesty was allowed to uh, survive. But unfortunately, I wasn't the last one. And I, I talk about a number of whistleblowers in the FBI who, you know, I try to detail as much as I could had remarkable careers. I mean, these aren't people who are malcontents from day one, who were troublemakers. These are people who had astonishing careers in the FBI, and yet as soon as they reported internal wrongdoing, this machine just went after them. And uh, Julie, Julia Crowley and Jane Turner are both good examples. You know, Jane Turner was, was one of the, ex, was probably the expert uh, in, in child sexual exploitation cases and, and did a lot of, uh, work on uh, Indian reservations. And when she reported the mishandling of uh, child exploitation cases, that started a process where they, they just went after her and destroyed her career rather than address internal problems. But Jane Cowley's uh, story was uh, uh, better documented because the Inspector General Michael Horowitz actually did an investigation of what happened to her. And, and when she had made a, a a discrimination claim, along with uh, four other FBI employees, uh, the FBI brought the inspection division in, and they found all these people in, in all these different agencies to say derogatory things about her and said, OK, that's why your career is going nowhere, because we have this, all these people saying these bad things. So to his credit, the inspector general reinvestigated everybody the IG talked to. And they said, I never said that. We love Julia. <laughs> she was excellent to work with. We couldn't understand why she was getting transferred out. And so they had actually created this entire investigation out of whole cloth for the purpose of getting rid of somebody who was complaining about management. Uh, and again, when, even though these things come out, in my case, there was an inspector general investigation. And in her case, there was. And it's well documented that there was this uh, fraudulent uh, rewriting of the record, and yet nobody ends up getting punished for that. So what the management learns is you can get away with this, that this is, this is how we suppress any internal dissent. And you know, like I said, I thought my good record protected me. But in hindsight, my good record and the fact that I was well known throughout the Bureau, because I did undercover work in all kinds of different offices, made it better for me a better target, right? Because if we can do this to somebody who is known as a very successful straight shooting agent, then what do you think will happen to you if you raise, raise an alarm? You know, so keep your head down. Don't report wrongdoing. And, uh, and you might have a, a, a career here. And this is America's number one law enforcement and, and you know, again, they have—they're very fortunate. You know, it, it because of its reputation, it attracts top talent, and there are excellent FBI agents out there that get by despite these management problems, and and you know, do the right thing when they have the discretion to choose. Um, but unfortunately, the rules have been changed in such a way that it empowers the worst elements of the FBI. And and so, if you have this problem. And I'm assuming this, this is essentially like a middle management problem for the most part. At, uh, at, at I the, mean, it comes from the top, too. Uh, 
but you get the, the above the special agent level, right? Yes. Right, and then it just kind of works its way up. Right. So, the good old boys, it's mainly good right. old boys, right, who wind up creating this management culture. Right. They are not going to be promoting the Mike Germans of the world, right? They're going to be they're going to be looking for people who are the go along to get along types, right? Tell me if I'm like off course here. No, I mean, I mean that phrase is actually used, go along, get along. Um, so ab absolutely. And, and part of it's built into the system, right? If uh, th there's two career tracks in the FBI, one where you stay a special agent, you stay out in the field, you stay working cases, you have a gun, a, a badge in a car, and you can go out and catch bad guys and be a hero in your community. Um, or you can choose to be in management. And if you choose to be in management, uh, you go back to FBI headquarters where you sit in a cubicle and you have an inbox and an outbox and you have zero discretion, right? So the agents make a request of you, you put it in your outbox for the guy above you, the answer comes back down the chain and, and you're just a cog in this. And you go from being a, a headquarters uh, what they call a substantive desk supervisor. Then you go, you do that for two years. Then you go out into the field for two years where you're a desk supervisor, where you have the exact same job, except you're out in the field actually overseeing agents. But again, you have no authority, everything. You're just the conduit to the higher ups. Uh, then you go back to headquarters for two years as a unit chief. Uh, and again, you're, you're further up the chain, but you're still just passing. <laughs> for permissions to do these things. Um, back out in the field as an assistant special agent in charge, back to headquarters as a, a section chief, two years on the inspection teams. Um, so you're talking 12 years before you actually have any authority to tell anybody what to do that isn't coming down from above. So it, you know, it creates this incentive that they know that anybody that they make angry above them throughout that process ends their, their climb and any mistake they make that they can be blamed for you know if it happens while it's in your inbox and you haven't signed it it's whoever's below you <laughs> if it happens once it got to your outbox with your initials on it you get blamed and you know the lower down you know they have a saying about what falls downhill as well yeah. uh, so it builds and this was all part of what Colleen Rowley wrote about you know it builds this culture of uh, caution and, and saying no. And, you know, and a lot of times caution is good in an institution like this. You want them to be cautious about real things, but you don't want them to be cautious when they don't really understand how the agency works or how the law works. Um, I wanted to ask a little bit about um, staying on the topic of whistleblowers. Um, the current moment, on the one hand, you know, obviously, with, there's a lot of attacks against a certain whistleblower um, all the way up to the president. Um, but at the same time, I feel like the public is getting a real education in what it means to be a whistleblower and the value of whistleblowers. And same within the intelligence community, I think, as well. Um, and then tied to that, as I was reading about the treatment of whistleblowers uh, within your book, it reminded me of how certain FBI leaders have been treated by this administration, right. you know, stripped of their pensions, shoved out the door. 
um, you know, their, their career and their good record kind of all of a sudden meaning nothing. Right. And I thought, like, is that a teaching moment too, you know? Uh, it, it should be. And, and, you know, Andrew McCabe, who was the deputy director, uh, famously gets fired the day before he would have uh, you know, uh, gotten his 20 years to have his full pension benefits. Um, and the public is correctly horrified by that, right? That it was clearly animus that drove that decision to make this uh, uh, personnel action happen right before he was supposed to get a benefit. Um, but that's how the FBI system works. It is very vindictive that way. Uh, and uh, you know, any time they knew somebody had some kind of benefit coming, they would drop the hammer. And I talk about one particular case uh, uh, in the book. Um, so, you know, as, as much as I would argue it's improper to do to Andrew McCabe, just like everybody else, he was def deputy director of the FBI when it was happening to others mm -hmm. and didn't do anything to change it. So I'm, I'm not going to shed too many tears for him. Um, uh, you know, I, I talk in the book about... Uh, uh, a contract and, uh, contractor within the FBI who was, uh, or he was an employee, but he was working on, on getting contracts, and he found fraud and raised attention to it, and that caused retaliation, and ultimately he was fired. Um, and he was fired because he had not gone, he had gone through the chain of command. He didn't go around the chain of command, and therefore wasn't protected, and, and therefore your case is over, you can't make a whistleblower case. And uh, there was a bill that Senator Grassley and Senator Leahy had worked on. All these whistleblower bills are bipartisan um, that would have corrected that, that would have allowed chain of command uh, uh, reporting. Um, and uh, it, that was right around 2016 when the election was happening. And as is normal, you know, you get that post-election month and there's too many things going on, so it looks like it's not moving. And a number of the whistleblower advocacy groups, like the National Whistleblower Center and GAP and POGO, uh, went to Leahy and Grassley and said, look, you know, there's a guy who, could, who still has three weeks before he, he can make his appeal, and if you pass this one little passage of it, uh, it might be able to protect his career and at least give him a hearing. And so they moved heaven and earth, and they got that passage passed, authorizing chain of command uh, reprisals. He went back to the internal appeals process of the Justice Department and said, look, you know, I, my case was thrown out for this reason that's now changed. The day before the law went into effect, they fired him. They, they ended his appeal. Yeah. You know, so that kind of thing, that vindictiveness is, is uh, uh, you know, and doing criminal investigations, you know, there would be some agents who would get really angry at the people they're investigating and, you know, really, you know, and I would always say, you know, they did something bad. Our job is to catch them and prove it. You know, there, there, there doesn't have to be anger in it. There doesn't have to be vindictive. I mean, obviously, you know, anybody who does anything illegal uh, uh, takes that risk. But that, you know, especially if that kind of vindictiveness exists when it's one of our own yeah. that we're going after, yeah. imagine the, the problems that you create when this agency goes out and looks at others. Um, I want to touch on two more things. Do I have time? Sure. Um, totally. You talk a lot about the book in the book about um, 
sort of FBI's discriminatory practices and its racial profiling as it does investigations. Right. But you also talk about the internal problem of diversity and how it treats minorities within the ranks. Right. And um, I found that sort of really moving. On the personal stories are, um, but also the sort of the national security threat it creates by not being able to. Um, higher Arab speakers, Arabic speakers, or higher Chinese speakers. If you could talk a little bit about about that part of the book and and that aspect of it. Sure. So so again, it's this looking through at national security for this through this very narrow lens and the creation of an internal security division where, you know, ninety nine point nine percent of FBI agents are going to be okay, right, uh, and, and not be violating the law in, in actual criminal ways. Uh, so, but by empowering this security division, they have to go out and Just slay like the dragons. Just moles, basically. Right, and, for... and you know, this, the, um, the CIA went through that in the 1960s and 70s where the mole hunting so damaged the ability of, of these groups to work. But one of the problems that was discovered after 9-11 was that there was a shortage of linguists. And uh, so the FBI started to go out and, and hire linguists, but you know, to get somebody who's, who's you know, naturally uh, native-speaking fluency, you have to get somebody who has spent a lot of time in these foreign countries. But of course, if you talk to a, one of these security people, spending time in a foreign country is, is a risk. And so, right, it's an indicator. It's an indicator. So, you know, having family in a foreign country is an indicator. You know, all these things that aren't really indicators, right? If you look at the people who are who are actually spying, Aldrich James, Robert Hansen, they don't meet those criteria. You know, it's a, it's a flawed profile that they create. But basically, well, this incredible story where they believe it's their Chinese American linguist who's the mole, when actually it's the white guy who's having an affair with. A Chinese spy. Right. This was uh, Rita Chang, who was an LA uh, special agent working on Chinese counterintelligence and native speaker, but didn't really have strong connections to, to China. But by all accounts, from everybody, just a fantastic agent. Um, uh, during one investigation, they find that uh, uh, there's an FBI document within the hands of. of uh, Chinese officials that they shouldn't have, they trace down that it comes from this one squad in LA. You know, we, we have a mole, so they start a mole hunt. And uh, because of her reputation, they ask her to be on the mole hunt team, right? That we're, we're gonna um, use you, but we're just gonna do a routine polygraph for everybody who's gonna be part of this team that's trying to find the mole. And in that polygraph, they say, ah, there's a problem with the polygraph. You're not passing it. And you must go collect your things and go home. And a security person will walk you out. And, you know, goes from being this uh, very well-respected agent to being out on the street. And with no explanation, they wouldn't show her the polygraph results. They wouldn't, nothing. And she's out there in the cold. For, for months and months, and I don't even remember how, how long exactly, but it turned out her supervisor had been having an affair with a, uh, uh, an inform, a Chinese intelligence informant 
who apparently was also engaging with Chinese intelligence. Uh, and uh, according to the story that, uh, that w was what they determined the final thing would be, uh, accidentally left his briefcase open during one of their uh, trysts. And that must have been how this. And he got like a slap on the hand, right? Uh, yep. Th there was no espionage charges, no. Uh, he didn't do any jail time. I think he, he pled to uh, uh, some minor violation. Um, but uh, it turned out there was another uh, Chinese intelligence specialist in the FBI, again, another white male, who was also having an affair with the same informant. <laughs> uh, you know, so, uh, uh, and it's astonishing because on that same uh, squad was uh, another uh, Chinese, Japanese, American, her family was blended, had been here for generations, uh, who, who also came under suspicion in a different case. So this supervisor, who is the security threat, is actually you know, monitoring investigations of two of the people who are working on his squad who happen to have Asian ancestry, while nobody suspects this it person. Happen to be women. <laughs> right, and happen to be women, exactly. So there's. Uh, you know, those biases, again, when you're working at national security and you're trying to imagine who's threatening, somebody who looks like me isn't threatening, somebody who has my background when that's, that's the actual threat and that's the problem. And again, you know, um, there's so much intelligence community consternation about whistleblowers like uh, Chelsea Manning or, or Edward Snowden when it, it, all, all they're doing is informing the American public about things we should already know, right? We should have information about what the government is doing in our name. The actual spies are doing this for years, right? You know, Robert Hansen was doing it for more than a decade, Alder James for more than a decade. Uh, so, you know, it, it's looking at the wrong problem in, in addressing it. and. Um, Everybody here has heard of Edward Snowden, <laughs> Chelsea Manning. Um, uh, uh, oh, I just blanked on his name. Um, no, um, Delisle, Jeffrey Delisle. You guys all know Jeffrey Delisle. Nobody knows Jeffrey Delisle. Jeffrey Denial was a Canadian military officer who, under the Five Eyes intelligence sharing programs, had access to American intelligence. And for five years, every month, he walked out with a thumb drive that he was selling to the Russians before Edward Snowden. You know, even if Edward Snowden, uh, or if the Russians got everything Edward Snowden walked out with, it was only redundant to what they'd already had for years. You know, and the idea that, that Edward Snowden is the problem, he's the problem because he's reporting misconduct within these agencies or egregious abuses where Jeffrey Delisle, you don't hear the intelligence community talking about, you know. Well, and he was caught, Delisle was caught? Uh, he was finally caught uh, by Canadian authorities, um, uh, you know, after years of having done it. So, uh, and, you know, again, doesn't meet any of the criteria, wasn't Russian, didn't have family over there, uh, just wanted a few extra bucks. I had one, we, one last question to the audience. Um, to change gears completely, but I thought, because while you're here, the new, there was a story yesterday that Attorney General 
Bill Barr has ordered that any investigation into um, a 2020 presidential candidate or campaign has to be signed off by him personally. And I wanted to get your take. Would this normally be a reasonable or prudent move under different circumstances? Does it raise alarm bells for you? What do you make of and, that? And if I can just piggyback on that, maybe a good time to discuss the difference between assessments, mm. Um, mm. preliminary investigation, full investigation, and this would be considered a sensitive investigative matter, right, right. Sam? Um, so, so the last time that the FBI's guidelines, their internal Justice Department rules called the Attorney General Guidelines that govern the FBI domestic investigations uh, were amended. It was under Michael McCasey in 2008, right before the Obama administration took over. Um, and they authorized three different types of investigations. So uh, the, the first type of investigation is called an assessment. And uh, the level of evidence that, that an agent needs to open that <laughs> is none. <laughs> Literally no factual predicate required. Uh, the agents are supposed to do this kind of investigation proactively. Um, uh, often you see this signs in the metro, see something, say something. They're typically those leads that uh, uh, allow the FBI to go out and start doing investigations when there's no objective basis to believe you've done anything wrong. And one type of assessment authorizes what is called domain management, which is an extremely broad type of uh, investigative activity that um, the idea is that the, the agency should know the domain. So go out and know where the Cato Institute is, where you know, just all kinds of information about the geographic area, uh, but also the demographic makeup. So there's actually in the FBI a racial and ethnic mapping program where they map communities across the United States by race and ethnicity and track what they call racial and ethnic behaviors and facilities. We actually at the ACLU did a FOIA trying to get what, the, what racial and ethnic behaviors are, uh, but the FBI wouldn't give them up and a judge let, let them uh, keep that secret. Um, the next stage of investigation is a preliminary investigation and all it takes is an allegation or information. And there's an inspector general report about improper spying on domestic advocacy groups uh, in 2010 that uh, revealed that the FBI agents make their own allegations. <laughs> so an agent alleges that somebody might commit a crime in the future and that's all that's necessary to open an investigation that can last, that lasts six months with two six months uh, uh, reauthorizations possible. So you could be investigated for a year and a half just based on an agent saying he thinks you might do something bad. And then finally, the, the full investigation is, uh, authorizes all, all FBI uh, tactics um, requiring a reasonable indication that somebody has actually done something wrong. Uh, so the, that's the framework uh, for them. And, and there are a couple of other um, if a foreign government requests an investigation, the FBI can open an investigation based on a foreign government, which is a little scary to me <laughs> that you can come under scrutiny of your government because some foreign government has requested it. Um, uh, but the interesting thing about it is because the FBI now frames itself as a domestic intelligence agency, it's not necessarily, they don't open these assessments and investigations to find evidence of criminality. 
they open them to collect intelligence. So there's a thing called the baseline collection plan that lists about 15 different types of information that they would want to collect. So they'd want to know about your family, they'd want to know about your neighbors, they'd want to know about your work colleagues, they'd want to know all this information, and it's like a checklist. So you go down collecting all this information, groups that you've been involved in, you know, all based on maybe somebody on the metro saying that you were acting a little oddly on the metro, or somebody who doesn't like you saying something bad that, that goes to the FBI, and even though there's no basis to substantiate any of that, it gives them an awful lot of authority to investigate people who, who they don't even suspect have done something wrong. And just to give you an idea of the scope of it, um, when, when the FBI first got this authority, uh, Charlie Savage in the New York Times uh, was submitting FOIAs trying to get information about how this assessment authority was used. And what he finally got two years later was in the two years after they got this authority, the FBI opened 82,000 assessments Keep it, of people and organizations, not the domain management stuff. Um, think about that. There are 12,000 FBI agents. <laughs> And yet they opened 82,000 of these lowest level investigations. And of those, only about 3,400 found enough evidence to open a preliminary investigation or a full investigation. So again, it's not, it's not to find information of wrongdoing that we can use to, to you know, do a more thorough investigation. It's literally just we're collecting information from these 82,000 people and putting it in our databases. And to Kate's uh, question, this Barr memo and, and this, you know, I, Bill Barr, have to personally sign off on any investigations or Sorry, campaigns, yes. is that, um, what's the precedent for that or is it unprecedented? So, so you know, this came up a lot with, with uh, how James Comey uh, defended himself in, in violating all the Department of Justice policies and procedures to talk about Hil the Hillary Clinton investigation. Um, when that investigation started, uh, you know, this doesn't get spoken of very much, but he made this statement that, look, we're going to do this investigation above board, and to make sure that's true, I am going to be overseeing every aspect of it. Mm -hmm. Well, that's not normal, right? <laughs> and, you know, if, if you want to say we're doing something by the book, then do it. you do it by the book, right? <laughs> you say we're not treating this case any differently than any other investigation. The agents on the ground who have the experience, who know how to handle these investigations, will conduct these investigations. As soon as an investigation gets led by headquarters, I knew that there were going to be problems. And in fact, the inspector general report said that was one of the problems, is that these managers, you know, they're pushing paper from one side of their desk for the last eight years. They're, they don't have the, the knowledge to actually run an investigation and you are disrupting the normal process of information sharing. So it's just a, a nightmare. And, you know, there are a lot of different types of investigations um, that do require attorney general authorization. Mm -hmm. um, and so, you know, I, I would have to even open it. Uh, yeah. 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 You know, so you mentioned the sensitive investigative matters. Um, uh, because of the COINTELPRO ab abuses uh, written into the guidelines were limitations on the investigation of politicians, the, and not limitations on the investigations, just a heightened authorization um, to uh, investigate politicians, to investigate uh, uh, advocacy groups, to investigate clergy, to investigate um, journalists. Uh, there might be one more. 
um, maybe lawyers. Um, uh, it, but all it takes is a, an additional level of approval. Um, and it, it, there was a, recently a document that The Guardian obtained out in San Francisco uh, where the San Francisco, there had been a white supremacist riot at, in Sacramento where nine uh, protesters who came out to, to protest the, the white supremacists, eight or nine were stabbed. Um, but the, both the police and uh, the FBI treated the white supremacists as the victims uh, because the counter protesters, the protesters came out to oppose them. Um, but this document um, was a sensitive investigative matter. Uh, it was signed off by the chief division counsel uh, and the SAC, and it said that this rally was a Ku Klux Klan rally, uh, which it wasn't. The Ku Klux Klan wasn't there. It was two other white supremacist groups. Um, but it said, the Ku Klux Klan is an organization some people believe has a white supremacist agenda. And then it talks about this rally, and it says, you know, the, the, this... Uh, anti-racist group came out to oppose them, and nine people got stabbed. Right? Well, that passive voice is a little odd, right? <laughs> if I'm going to be approving this investigation, I want to know who stabbed who. But if you put who stabbed who in there, then you can't open the investigation against the anti-racist group, right? So that that kind of a document, number one, how somebody didn't send it back to the agent and say, uh, let's more thoroughly identify the Ku Klux Klan uh, and you know, let's read the newspaper to determine <coughs> that the Klan actually wasn't there. Uh, uh, but you know, more importantly, having this passive voice obscured the truth rather than uh, enlightened it, and that's the last thing you want to see in an FBI document. But I, get, I think shows that that sensitive investigative matter that required that higher level of approval actually isn't very effective. You know, it's just sign off. So, you know, I, I would certainly have any concerns when an attorney general is making a new plan for a particular type of case, um, because of course, attorney generals are political appointees in all cases, um, and certainly FBI directors too. They get shielded a little bit by the 10-year term, um, but you know, nobody, nobody becomes a, a attorney general or FBI director without having had a pretty political career, right? You get appointed by politicians. They, yeah. they rarely reach into the bowels of a bureaucracy and say, hey, yeah. nobody knows you, but you want to be the director? i say one last thing. As you're talking, but also reading the book, it's the perfect context, I think, for understanding um, the Carter Page FISA application and why those mistakes were made. It's not political animus or motivation. These are the exact kind of mistakes right. that you describe. And any sort of raising your hand and going, oh, by the way, that Christopher Steele info, we found out it's like not very good anymore. Right. That that's the very thing that would be buried or changed just to like cover your tracks. And You know, and, and I, as an investigator, it's always hard to identify motive in any case. Um, but you know what I learned was anything that could be explained by incompetence rather than conspiracy is probably more likely to and be true. And the bureaucracy just pushing back. And you know the the way you know uh, the difference between a foreign intelligence surveillance act 
wiretap and a criminal Title III wiretap. Uh, if doing a criminal investigation, I get a judge to sign off on a wiretap, I have to man that wiretap or I have to uh, listen to that wiretap the entire time it's on. And I have to minimize when the conversation isn't by the person. So if, if somebody's wiretapping my house and my wife gets on the phone and she's not part of the criminal conspiracy, they think Mike German is. When my wife gets on the phone, they turn off the tap. When my daughters get on the phone, they turn off the tap. If some neighbor comes by and uses my phone, they turn off the tap. And you have to do that in real time to minimize uh, the intrusion into the public's privacy. Um, in the FISA context, the tap goes on. Because you're supposed to be, in theory, collecting it, you want to know who all the, like the whole world that surrounds the person, right? Um, I, theory, I suppose. Uh, <clears throat> well, let's talk about how it really works. <laughs> is, let, is, let, let, if we can, let's hold that because I, want, I do want to make sure that we get some questions okay. in here. We're, okay. we're going we're gonna to move to questions here. Um, again, as the mics come around to you, uh, do stand, identify yourself and any affiliation, and do keep it to a question. Let's start with Woody right here. Woody Kaplan, Defending Rights and Dissent. Hi, Woody Kaplan, Defending Rights and Dissent. Um, I want to take it away from, on the very last point, I want to take it away from the Bush bar context and put it a long time ago. Mm -hmm. I'm disquieted by the Justice Department or any branch of it, including without limitation the FBI, deciding what's potentially domestic terrorism. And the classic example of it is a group of Roman Catholic nuns who were having a uh, meeting on repealing the death penalty in Maryland. And uh, they sent FBI agents undercover into that meeting. And the bottom line of it that is you're going to be pretty intimidated about ever going to another meeting again right. if you think the feds are looking at you. Right. And as the, our organization put out a little hit, um, email on it saying, uh, dangerous nuns. Um, and by the way, it's been 40 years since J. Edgar Hoover's last dance. How come the name is still on the building? Mm. Um, uh, so. Unfortunately, that hasn't stopped. And I talk in, in the book about a nationwide investigation. So again, the FBI is saying, we don't have the authority to go after violent white supremacists who kill people. We need more authorities in order to do that. And yet they had a multi-year nationwide investigation of a group called Deep Green Resistance. And Deep Green Resistance is a, is a, a, a group that is a, a concerned about the environment, and they engage in civil disobedience. They'll lay down in the street to stop some trucks carrying something from somewhere. You know, they'll do that kind of civil disobedience that's completely normal. And there has been a multi-year investigation of FBI agents going out and knocking on their doors, and knocking on their doors at work, knocking at the doors at home, knocking on their neighbors' doors. Um, uh, you know, typically when, and, and there's a journalist named Adam Fetterman who does a lot of uh, work in the environmental uh, advocacy world in his journalism, uh, obtained these documents through FOIA that later became a Guardian article. Um, 
But anytime I get those kinds of documents from FOIA, I always look for the hook, right? What's the criminal activity that, that is in these documents that I can identify? And in these hundreds of documents justifying this natural or national investigation, uh, the only criminal thing I could identify was that somebody wrote Deep Green Resistance in Sharpie on a bathroom wall at the University of Washington. <laughs> and that was really the only thing that could arguably be called uh, a criminal. And it was interesting because there's a back and forth with the custodian because they're trying to determine the value of that vandalism. And the, the, they're you know, saying, oh, you know, how much would it cost to get this off? And he said, it's a Sharpie. It's alcohol. You <laughs> just rub it with alcohol. It comes off. Uh, but that's the kind of craziness that if they have the authority to investigate that group where there's no allegation that they're engaged in any kind of terrorism as a domestic terrorist, how, do, how does it square with? And, and my concern about wanting to pass a broad domestic terrorism law is that they're not going to use that to target the groups they're already ignoring. They're going to use that to more aggressively go after the groups that, that they have some animus against. Other questions? Quickly over here, sir, down here in the front. Um, <clears throat> my name is Matt Prickett. I'm just an interested citizen. And your book title uh, caught my eye, Dis Democracy, you know. But what I want to know is, is there anything that you could not put in your book that the Bureau blocked you from putting in? They do vet former employees. Right, writing, yeah. Right? Uh, Question. Uh, good question. I, I, the book did go through uh, pre-publication review. I'm fortunate that most of my work was on the criminal justice side of the FBI, not the intelligence side. So I don't really have that many real secrets. And the secrets that I do have uh, are more sort of the, the process of working undercover that, number one, wouldn't be very interesting to you. And number two, might get somebody hurt. So I'm not interested in telling those stories anyway. Um, uh, so, and this is my second book, and there wasn't a word taken out of my first book, so I didn't expect any problems. Um, but in the process, they're supposed to take 30 days. And this I submitted in, uh, in 2018, in the summer of 2018, and it wasn't until seven months later uh, that I got the approval. Uh, so. I had been talking to other authors that were also having problems, so I don't know that there was any personal animus or anything in the book, and it was kind of a funny story. Um, at one point, towards the end, I was very frustrated, and I said, look, you know, if there's some issue, if there's something that you're having trouble with, you know, just let me know. Let's work it out. You know, I'm trying to get this uh, to the publisher. And, and they said, well, there's this one story you tell about an FBI agent who... Uh, 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 who was a whistleblower, released some information and was prosecuted. And you referenced the documents that are public. They're on the internet. Um, but you know we still consider them uh, classified. And I said, yep, I, I do reference those documents. But I'm sure you understand your pre-publication review regulation better than I do, because you work with it all the time. So you know this one clause, and I cut and pasted it in, says that you are not allowed to use pre-publication review to censor material that were produced by the FBI after the agent left the agency. <laughs> Next day, it was approved. <laughs> so, uh, you know, make make of that what you will. But no, nothing nothing got taken out of the book. 
And on that subject, uh, let's thank Mike and Kate, and we will get to the book signing. Thank you.